Welcome to the discussion brought to you by Bike Bug. This is our first in what is a series that's taking us up to Christmas. And the theme today is pretty simple. It's perseverance and pave. And I'm joined by the man that exemplifies it better than anybody else in Australian cycling. Certainly this year with his win at Paris-Roubaix. Matt Heyman, thanks for being the first guest on the discussion. No worries. My first time Facebook Live, I think. Is it really? Yes. Well, oh, a few, a few around the starts of the tour, but uh, yeah. Let's get into it. Well, you've had a few firsts this year. The reason that a lot of people were brought to your attention this year outside of the cycling community was that win at Paris-Roubaix. And there was one quote in there from your backstage pass before the race got underway, and you said, the one piece of advice that I've had that's really stuck with me, that's not groundbreaking advice. It was advice from Mark Walters, who said, just keep going. Yeah. No, he's a, he was another guy that, like me, um, just loved Roubaix. That was that was a one race a year. I mean, he's won some great races. If you look his career up, um, probably you know a not well known Belgium cyclist, but he's won stages in the Tour de France, had the yellow jersey in the Tour. But Roubaix was his race, and Roubaix was the one time he put pressure on himself to do well, just just like me. And and um, yeah, every year when you got towards the bus, or he used to see me around these uh, Heyman, always keep riding Alto Blafardet. So doesn't matter what happens, you know. So, and Roubaix is the race about, about carnage and about things happening and just keep going. So, always taking that away. How does it feel the morning of Paris-Roubaix compared to every other race? Yeah, for me it's like Christmas, I guess. Um, and the afternoon you realise you have to wait another year. To <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the one race I look I, I like all the Belgian classics and, and they're all exciting. And, and Flanders is great too. Flanders is like being at a rock concert for, for six and a half hours. Um, but Roubaix just is, is the one that's pretty special. It's an extraordinary event. I had a message just a couple of days ago when we were promoting this discussion. It came from Anna Legg, who said that your win was her second favourite cycling moment ever after Cadell Evans on the stage to Alpe d'Huez in 2011 when he had to have the bike change and he saved the tour. Yeah. That's good company to keep, Matt. Uh, yeah, I mean, the response has been phenomenal. Um, to hear that grown men are crying at three o'clock in the morning has been pretty pretty humbling actually um, that you know friends have felt so emotional about a sporting prestation uh, you know something you know it's just sport but um, seems to have um, strung a chord with a few people took me three days to get to sleep it took me longer oh, <laughs> fantastic if you have just joined us it's the discussion Matt Keenan with Matt Heyman brought to you by bike bug and a little bit later on we'll reveal the question how you can enter to get on board for your chance to win a $500 pair of Lake shoes. Another comment that was made was by Lee, who was actually in Belgium, and he's watched the Belgian coverage of it. And he said the Belgian TV coverage of the event wasn't quite as exuberant as what the Australian coverage was. No, I can only imagine you had Sepp for Mark and Tom Bonin there, and, and, uh, and I don't think, you know, they've got a couple of stories about me. My wife watches, obviously, the Belgian television, and... Uh, she said they have changed their story. The old story was that I won the Dutch under-23 national titles in whenever, what year that was. And uh, they used to just have a couple of standard stories, but you've got, except for Mark and Tom Bonin and, and you know, some Ian Stannard, they would have been talking about them the whole time. And they're quite patriotic people. And, uh, yeah, I can imagine that I, I ruined their day. I ruined the day of a lot of Belgian people, I think. But you made a lot of Australians pretty happy. No, and a good... Uh, kept a lot of Australians awake all night and, and I don't think it was just uh, just the Australians in their house. From what I've heard of, a couple of streets have been woken up in the middle of the night. So 
it was great to hear, have all the reactions from back home and, and um, yeah, really quite humbling. Let's go through the race. Big breakaway group goes, and in the commentary booth with Robbie McEwen, I was thinking, fantastic, Matt Hamley can go top 10. It's then reduced down to that group with Boonen, Van Mark, Bosenhagen and Stannard, and you're the fifth guy there. And I'm thinking, top five, big chance. Hold on, top five. So was I. <laughs> and then Ian Stannard came underneath you on the car yeah. for the lab, and I thought, oh no, he's back in the hunt for top 10. What did you think at that moment? Yeah, look, uh, I wanted to lead into Carrefour de Lab, and I knew that, you know, I know the race. So the, the section before, the, the finish of that section before, it's quite a short distance of, of asphalt before you start. And the first three corners of Carrefour de Lab, it's really rough and it's, and it's quite dangerous and quite a few people have crashed there before. And I thought, you know, I want to be in front and then I have five guys have to pass me. And I'm leading all the way along the asphalt thinking, oh, they've all fallen for this. And next minute, left, right, left, right. And Ian just hadn't got past me. And he'd been told, I heard later from the car, that he had to get past me. Um, and he came underneath and bumped me out. And I So hang on, the sports directors didn't rate you? Well, well I don't think so at the time. Um, I'm not sure whether that's true, but I, um, someone said, you, you know, they said, make sure you're in front of him. And of course, you don't want the guy who's been in the breakaway losing the wheel on you. Um, and, you know, of course, Sepp was going to attack there. Mm. Um, but I just wanted to get in there at the front and, and, and make sure, like, like those guys did, um, if you have to have four guys pass you, that's four more chances that you do getting on a wheel than, than being fifth and, and getting tailed off. Um, what did you think at that moment, though, when you're off the side of the road? I'm just thinking when uh, Johan van Sommer and, and uh, Juan Antonio Fletcher came to, together there and they crashed. And, yeah. Um, so I, I managed to hold it up, and maybe I was too cautious. Maybe I could have got around the corner, and but yeah, that that image of Fletcher crashing in that corner just you know that's the problem too of riding the race 15 times. I know where every corner that everyone's ever crashed in, and Hushoff just crashed in the next one to the left. So, um, and I'm thinking, yeah, if I get dropped here, who knows what's happening behind me? Maybe the guys um, Heinrich and, and 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 Luke Rowe, and there was a group just behind. Maybe they've already been caught by another 10 chasers and I can end up 20th in this race. Um, that's what I truly yeah. thought. And it wasn't until I just thought, right, get through this section and see where you end up. And I started riding and uh, lo and behold, they weren't really going away from me. So I just started to slowly peg them back. And So again, perseverance. Yeah. And, when and you... I was thinking, you know, you don't give up. You don't give up at that point. Well, when you came back at that point, I thought you were a chance for the podium. I still hadn't had you pegged as the potential winner. I thought you were a chance for the podium at that point because you showed so much strength to get back. What did you really think then? Yeah, I wanted to get off the end of that. I mean, Kafu the Lava is, is the last real. You know, Hum is, is a bit of a dangerous one for punches more than anything else. Um, so I wanted to get off the end of Kafu the Lava. And, and by the time we got to Hum and towards the end of Hum, um, I guess I was thinking then you don't really want to get fourth or fifth out of a group of five if you've come so far. And I'd made mistakes before in Roubaix and felt like my chance ever to get on the podium. That's when I started to believe that, you know, probably coming into that last five kilometres, there's a slight rise there coming into town. And I thought, you know, here we have a chance to, to maybe get on the podium. And, and that was probably the dream that, that I ever dared to dream about, was maybe yeah. getting on the podium in Roubaix. But then there was the moment where Tom Bonin attacked with about two and a half k's to go. And Matt rode across. When you rode across, that was the moment where I thought, you can actually win this. 
So I've gone for about 263 <laughs> kilometres, not thinking you could win the last two I jumped on board. Oh, I mean, I wouldn't have given myself a chance of winning either. Um, well, I felt a lot better. Day, I mean, I had a broken arm. I was there to have fun. I was there to maybe support the team if, if, if uh, Luke and, and, and Jens were on a great day. Um, in some ways, Luke was on a great day and had a puncher. He had a fantastic ride. He was, he was going awesomely. And had he not had that puncher, I may have dedicated myself solely to riding for him and, and never Best. got this result. Best punch of Luke Durbridge has ever had in your career. In my career it is, yes. Um, he can you know, win it one day then. But for sure. Yeah. And I think I've given him and, and 30 or 40 other guys a sniff. And it has, as Stewie did in the past, as Magnus Backstead and mm, Hammond. And there's guys that have been on the podium that don't podium in, in, in monuments normally. And, and that's what keeps us all kind of training in November and December and January. Because there's just that little chance that it might come off. So you're coming onto the velodrome with Tom Bonin. When you made he, your debut and he made his debut, you were 65th, he was third. When he won it in 2008, you were last official finisher, 113th, at 29 and a half minutes behind. He's won over 100 races. Going onto that velodrome, you'd won three. Yeah. But you still had the confidence to beat him. Yeah, but everybody stands up in the morning, we've all got two legs and... I didn't have the confidence to beat him. I managed to beat him. Um, you know, I still wouldn't have backed me against Tom coming into that sprint. But obviously, somewhere I must have been backing myself a bit. As I was, you know, if I was really just riding for a podium, I probably would have ridden into the velodrome on the front and led the sprint out to make sure the other guys didn't come back. So somewhere I must have been still, you know, the, obviously when I closed the gap to Tom, I felt there's, a, mm. there's still some power in the legs and, and I wasn't ready just to throw the race away and... and um, yeah, I still don't know where it came from or just kind of, I think I really reverted back to just, just the pure racing that you've always done and, and, and yeah. everyone was even at that point in the race, you know, it's, it's not Tom Bonin, it's just, you know, it's just the riders against each other and we're all pretty tired and I just managed to have it. You just managed to have it. You've started it 15 times, finished it every time, but one of them you were outside the time delay. Yeah, it's a bit of a sore How thing, important though. was that for you though, to finish? Yeah, it's always been my thing with Roubaix and, and you know, touch wood, um, it's, you know, I've had enough crashes in Roubaix, but it's something that I've liked to do is, is and I think it's important in that race to get to the finish. Um, it's such a monument and such a special race for me. I mean, one of the ones that sticks out more than, I'm not sure if that was the one when I finished last, there's one time that I finished 10 minutes behind the last group. And I gave my wheel to Fletcher before the um, Forest of Arenberg. Mm. I rode with six or seven guys to second feed. And after that, they got off. And that's when I decided, no, I still want to get to the finish. I had great legs, but Fletcher's standing there with a wheel. And yeah. You can't ride past the leader. Yeah. So I had great legs and was feeling great. And so I soldiered on. And I even on Kafu de Labra, I cleaned up a lady crossing the road. And, you know, luckily some fans picked up both of us, the lady and me, and pushed yeah. me off. And... and and I finished 10 minutes behind solo and still made the time cut. So it's always been something, Roubaix, if I start, I want to finish it. But yeah, I mean, you know, we saw Mitch Docker this year with such an awful crash. It yeah. can happen, but, you know, for me, if I start the race, I want to get to the finish line. Well, I was going to ask you about Mitch. So Mitch had a horrible crash yeah. in the forest of Arenberg. Yeah. His teeth were all over the place. There was yeah. blood everywhere. It was an awful hemorrhage. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty bad. What's your advice to him? Always keep riding. <laughs> and he has, and I think Mitch... 
Mitch uh, probably he's asked... He's right at the Worlds was good. Yes, and he's asked himself probably a big... A fair few questions after that. It's not his first bad accident, and um, you know, and I think he he spent a lot of time in the hospital thinking about what he was doing. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, it was a really and it and it brought the whole team back back to earth, and it was um, to get the news that he'd had a crash, and then to start to hear how bad it was. Um, yeah. So. And Mitch has decided that he wants to keep going. The sport's yeah. still got a lot to give, and 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 it's great to see him. And I and I mean, he loves the classics, as, and he's got a passion for it, like all the guys that go to Belgium, and definitely in our team. Mm. Um, and he's and he's one that has that feeling for Roubaix. So, who knows? Matthew Gilbert, or is it pronounced Gilbert? I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe his nickname is Phil. He wants to know where the pave is. Where's that trophy? Some people wanted me to bring it to Australia, and uh, I Excess was excess luggage. I well. I wouldn't put it in a suitcase, no way in the world. And if I wanted to take it on, it's almost 15 kilos. It's a good really. It's a good 13. Was it actually hard to lift above your head? It was surprisingly. Podium? It was all right to get up. There was a bit awkward to get off the ground, and it was a lot heavier than I expected. And um, yeah, the thought of bringing it and having it in my carry-on, and then getting stopped somewhere between Europe and here, and told I couldn't take it onto the next plane, was just enough for me to say, when it comes, it'll be coming for good. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, it's at home, and it's almost like the house was built around the rock. Um, there's a nice little alcove Perfect. that we have in the living room. Yeah, and it has a spotlight on it, and the spot gets, spotlight never goes out. It gets turned the on fuse, a long before it gets dark outside. The so. fuse box blows up, but that one's got its yeah, own. I think I need to change because there's three lights, and I think I'm going to get a, an 80 watt for that and 20 for the oh. other two. So, perseverance has been a big part of your career. But before we get on to the Tour de France, let's just stick with Paris-Roubaix a little bit longer. Who are the teammates that you'd ridden with throughout an extensive career since the year 2000? In fact, when you made your debut as a pro, the biggest IT thing we were talking about was the Y2K bug. And social media <laughs> was talkback radio. Yeah. You've been around a long time. Yeah, no, uh, I have been. I've been around before we had, you know, I was screwing telephone jacks out of the wall to try and get a bit of a dial-up connection <laughs> to get a message back to Australia. So things you have changed. You handwrote letters home at one point. I did, I did, in fact. Um, yeah. So, teammates, who's been the biggest influence on that Roubaix win? Yeah, I'd have to say, have to say, uh, as far as passion for the race goes, uh, Mark Walters sticks out again. Um, you know, but yeah, I can name them. One, Antonio Fletcher. I mean, he had yeah. a passion. One of the most, one of the guys that deserved probably to win. Yeah. And, and and there's a lot of guys that probably deserve to have won Roubaix and, and never got the chance. Um, and again, Leon from Bonn, who, who was yeah. just around the other day doing some photographs, and, and he was also one that was, you know, he was a more rounded rider and, and won a lot more, but um, um, I even, one of my first years was riding with Rolf Sorensen. I mean, he was more oh. of a more of an all-round classics rider than a Roubaix specialist. Um, so over the years, yeah, I think Fletcher sticks out as, as, as really putting on the line for, for Roubaix and, and Mark Walters, of course. Um, Is Rolf Sorensen the smartest guy you've raced with? Bike IQ's up there, Rolf. I think he was the canniest in a lot of ways. Oh, okay, um, oh, no, that's political talk now. You're on the fence with Rolf. No, no, he was smart. Um, in the Dutch word, he's slew. Okay. Um, so he's a smart like a fox. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He had ways of getting results in races where you just, yeah. I've, I've, uh, it was quite an experience, and it wasn't something I think you could teach somebody else. Yeah. It was... It was his way of, of winning, and um, in one of his last years, I think he ran top 10, maybe even top 5 in Flanders, and I'm pretty sure he had no form whatsoever. I think he mm. got dropped on every climb, and he attacked yeah. on every corner, and somehow he got to the finish, so 
very smart rider. And a lot of the lead up to this year's Paris-Roubaix, away from the fact that you had all that experience that played into it, much like you talk about Rolf and the smarts, a lot of people think that this Paris-Roubaix was brought to you by Zwift. <laughs> How much time did you spend in the garage on the stationary train? Um, I was doing between an hour and a half to an hour 45 um, twice a day, three days on, one day off pretty much. Yep. So getting up towards three hours, um, three hours a day on the days on. Um, and it was, you know, the biggest thing was I'd, I'd spent, I'd invested so much time in the winter, uh, training camps, altitude, and got to the classics and just rode half of the first classic of the whole classic season. Yeah. And I didn't want to just give all that work away. That's yep. that's three months worth of training, three months to get to. And, and because I felt like I had such good form, um, but it was probably pretty silly what I did actually, to spend three weeks on the home trainer in the chance that I might ride one classic. And you did. All right. <laughs> Perseverance is part of the theme for this discussion with Matt. It was your 15th season as a pro that you made your debut at the Tour de France? Yes, yes. So you went a long time before riding what is the big show in cycling, and that was part of your move to Orica, now Orica Bike Exchange. Yeah. How important was it for you to get that start, and then how hard was it to abandon? Yeah, look, I, I mean, when I came to the team, I talked to them about wanting to do the tour and how I felt like it was a missing piece in the puzzle of my career. And, um, and you know, I probably put a little bit of pressure on the team there too to, to select me and um, to actually climb off in the Tour de France and have to pull the numbers off the back of your jersey. It was pretty, it was one of the lowest points in my career and, and it was a pretty hard one to take. And I piled a lot of pressure on myself and maybe this is a reoccurring theme that if I put a lot of pressure on myself it doesn't often get the best results but I really wanted to be there and and I wasn't there to make up numbers I wanted to race the race but I also wanted to get to the finish it is a milestone in the sport and and it is the biggest race in the world and, and it is the one that attracts the most attention and, and I really wanted to do it um, and it almost yeah it was scary how how low I was after mm. that um, I didn't lose my love for the sport, but it was a pretty hard thing to come back from. And um, yeah, it was really, yeah, there's not much more I can say. I was in a, a pretty dark place for a while after that. So how, where does winning Paris-Roubaix this year and making it to Paris this year, how do those two compare, finishing the Tour de France and winning Paris-Roubaix? Yeah, look, we're not, we're not on a grand fondo here. I mean, it's about racing and it's, it's not about just finishing races. I like that. But not on a grand fondo. <laughs> it's not a it's not a grand fondo the Tour de France. It's not about but there is and it's like getting to the to the to the velodrome in Roubaix. Mm. For anybody that makes it to Paris, there is a and or any grand tour that for that matter, whether you make it to Milan, Madrid or Paris, um, there's a bit of a sigh of relief and a bit of a feeling of an accomplishment. Um, and for me to go seventeen years as a pro and finally mm. ride up the Champs Elysees, I turned on and Whitey was in the radio asking us, you know, what it felt like, the young guys, first timers. The young guys, and you're at 38. And then he said, oh yeah, and Ma oh, 38 by then. 38, yeah. And, uh, and Matty, what does it feel like? And, and I was pretty choked up. Yeah, it's um, nice to hear. The planes coming overhead and, and laying down the, the French flag up the Champs-Élysées and all the, all the fans. And you're tired, you're emotional when you're that tired and you've just done three weeks of racing and it's something that I'd looked out for for so long and to finally be there. I mean, Actually, probably more, about 20 years before mm. that, I'd gone to see the race with my father with a broken collarbone, racing as an amateur. And I stood on the, and I was a pretty cocky amateur rider winning some races. And I stood there and watched the whole race with my arm in a sling and said, oh, next time I'll be on that side of the fence. 
but it took 20, 20 years, years. And I thought it'd be within two or three. That is perseverance. You took a different path. In addition to your career being a story of just continuing to not stop pedaling, just keep going, uh, guys from your generation like Baden Cook, Cadell was around that period as well, Matt Wilson, a lot of them went to Italy and were based with the Australian Institute of Sport, down a 23 yeah. program. You did your own thing and went to Holland yeah. with the Rabobank Development School. Yeah. Why and how? Uh, I did. I came through the State um, Academy of Sport, the ACT Academy of Sport, and, and, and wanted to go to Junior Worlds um, on the track and missed out on selection for that and um, kind of in a... In a, in a good way, ended up riding on the road. Um, although at that time, every junior wanted to go on the track, track and be world champion teams pursuit. I mean, that's what, it was a, a rite of passage and- The Charlie influence. Yeah, Charlie and so I ended up on the track, uh, ended up on the road and got second at the junior worlds and um, and decided not to go back to the track. And um, and yeah, my brother was actually living in Holland and racing, mm. um, he's quite a few years, he's six years older than me and, and was racing the amateur team in, in, in Holland. And I had a few offers to go to Italy and and, and chose, you know, mum thought it'd be a bit nicer if I was around some family. So to make the move as an 18 year old and and, um, and with luck had it that, that Rabobank was, it was the first year they were starting this amateur team. Yeah. I think the pro team had been around for one year and Jan Ras had obviously been in the sport for longer. But um, yeah, and I got on board with Nico Verhoeven and, and you know, he had a great crop of riders and, and it was really good fun. Uh, we had a question from online beforehand, before we started live. So shooting your questions, if you want to ask Matt any questions. Um, it was about why Belgium? Why do you still live in Belgium when a lot of the Australians of your generation or younger yeah. go to the south of Europe? Yeah. Nice, Monaco, it's a bit more glamorous, Girona. Yeah. My Queensland wife asks me that all the time, why Belgium? So I never understood why McEwen goes from the Gold Coast to yeah, Belgium. No, I mean, it is it is the mecca of, our, of the sport. I mean, you know, um, the following there is, is unbelievable and the support you get. Um, but the weather's not great, and uh, we'll admit that. But, um, no, I started with the team, and in those days you didn't just fly from any airport. Um, teams yeah. were a bit more centralised, and I started with the Dutch team. and. And um, we always flew to races from, from Brussels, um, even if you lived in Holland. And so, yeah, then, you know, um, and then we ended up with an enclave of riders about my age who, um, who just uh, decided to move to that area of Belgium. Mm. And so there was about six or seven of us and we were all fairly young. You know, we weren't married and we trained together, traveled to the airport, saved costs and, and it just kind of grew from there. And by the time I had the option to live somewhere else, I was, too embedded yeah. in the community yeah. to move. So, what was the reaction like from the local community where you mm -hmm. live, coming back as a Roubaix? When has it changed? When you go down to the local grocery shop? Um, yeah, around town, it's a little bit different. Um, the first day back to school, uh, a lot of the, the, the oh, parents were kind of stepping out of the way in the corridor. Um, that'll be a good school drop-off. Yeah, there was a bit of house paint on the street now. And my, if I turn into my street, it's written Matthew Heyman first day <laughs> Roubaix. So. Um, no, it's been great and a lot of people like to tell the story of, uh, you know, that they were at a, at a birthday party or they were out somewhere and they were among other Belgians who yeah. were all throwing their hats on the ground when Tom got second and they yeah. were cheering for me Fantastic. and he lives around the corner so, so a lot of the Belgians. What did he say to you? He said, you deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. But my experience with Tom is he's actually a really nice guy. He's a really nice guy. My, the first event that I ever did internationally was the Tour of Qatar and going from reception checking in across to the lift a hand came out of the lift and held the door open and it was Tom Bonin holding the lift door open he didn't know who the hell I was yeah. 
and he didn't even see the person. He just knew yep. someone was coming, held the door open. A lot of elite athletes <laughs> would be pressing close, close on the lift and not waiting. No, and I think, um, you know, his career's had some a lot of ups and downs and it just shows too that he loves the sport. Otherwise, yeah. he, you know, he wouldn't have got through all of the things that he has. Um, and, yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for Tom Bonin and, and I knew full well, living in Belgium, I, you know, knew full well what was up for grabs. He was going yeah. for the record. I mean, he already is Mr. Roubaix, but... It was almost an unbreakable record that he was going for. The only person in Belgium that didn't want him to get that record was Roger de Vlamic, <laughs> who he shares the yes, record with. Who there was probably a camera on at the time when yeah. he got second. Ken has asked the question, is the backstage pass with Orica Bike Exchange as fun as it looks? It is. Um, Jonesy does a great job, and I think it's... Um, I will just add that it's always one take, so he doesn't, he doesn't give us a lot of chance. So it is... What you see is what you get, and... Um, and Jonesy in himself is such a personality and I he think is. he's such an asset to the team. Um, he makes the films and, and, and that gets, that gets the, uh, the fans a lot closer yeah. to us. But also what he does on tour for us, I mean, he's the butt of most jokes and <laughs> keeps morale high and I think it's great for the team. The only thing I don't like about Dan Jones is that he gets Esteban Chavez into a Hawthorne jumper. <laughs> it should be a Carlton jumper. Yeah, I've done, I'm, not, I'm not even not into it. No. Okay. But, he, but Esteban, he just knows three Pete, three Pete. That's all he, That's all he knows. Yeah. Uh, Daniel wants to know, is Orica Bike Exchange really different to other teams you've ridden with? Or how is it different? Yeah, it is. Um, it is. We've, it's a team that definitely accepts a lot of different personalities more mm. than the other teams I've been in um, have kind of tried to make everybody be the same way. And I think uh, it's a bit more forward thinking in the way that, um, you know, it kind of accepts different talents and different personalities and try to make some mesh. And I think, yeah. I think everybody does a, a great job with that. And, and, and the way that we also, it's kind of nice being the underdogs and, and picking off some big wins every year. Um, yeah. We're not... We're not the massive team with the big budget that's always expected to win. Um, we're the ones that just sniper around and, oh, yeah, and get some get some really good. But that could be changing. I mean, now I think we've got a lot more higher expectations on us after the results we've been getting. Serious sniping from this year's Vuelta. Yeah. So Orica Bike Exchange potentially next year can go into the Tour de France, depending on what Chavez does yeah. with the course design, with uh, four guys from top ten finishers in Grand Tours this year. Yeah, unbelievable. Extraordinary, yeah. Philip wants to know whether living in Belgium, racing in Belgium, across the cobblestones and in the wet, gives you the confidence to race pretty much anywhere. Yeah, look, um, it's it's quite a different. Quite, I mean, the cobblestones are different to anything else you'll ever do, and, and it's just something you have to experience. And the racing in Belgium, I mean, you either like it or you hate it. I mean, yeah. there's guys that don't even <clears> want to come near <laughs> an eco tour just because they know it goes across the border. Um, so you either like racing there or you don't, and it's a it's a different style of racing, and it takes a different physical capabilities. It's somebody that can be short power, and it's a lot of the times it's moving up for for corners and climbs yeah. than actually performing on the climbs. So, um, yeah. and it raining riding in the adverse weather, you know, you've got yeah. to either like it, and, and if you don't like it, you're not going to last very long. You spend a lot of time training in the rain. I did, not that I've got swift now. Okay, good answer. Um, Melanie wants to know what your favourite food is to eat when you race. Yeah, look... Is there such a thing? No, it's just shoveling it in. and I, I, I do enjoy eating, but um, a lot of the time it's just getting the rice and the pastas in. Yeah. But um, no, but, you know, when we've got Nikki on, on the race and Nikki's our chef and 
It makes a massive difference. I think um, morale, it doesn't matter what kind of a hotel you're in in France. Mm. If you've got Nicky bringing out a starter that, and you eat with your eyes and he does a fantastic job for us and and you see it on the team that we, nothing worse than a big, long, hard day and then you sit down to to a plate of unappetising food and and Nicky just, you know, the conversation starts back up and everybody's... Yeah, well, it's it's something to talk about. Food brings people together as well. And I've shared the hotel with you guys sometimes and I don't get to eat Nicky's food. I eat the hotel food. You can smell it and see it. But I walk past your food with great envy. Artie's asked a question here, but I don't think you can answer about the National Road Series because you're one of the guys that... Never really rode no. National Road Series at all and haven't had much exposure to No, it. I pretty much left after the junior ranks and, and I've done a couple of the handicaps around, around New South Wales and, and um, I've done some track racing around Australia. Um, look, I mean, the sport's booming in Australia. I mean, we've got some great professionals and uh, I think it's hard to find the balance of... Obviously, it's hard to put on races. Insurance, mm. obviously, from what I hear, insurance is hard to get. It's hard for organisers to, to make money out of racing. Police I do, coverage is really expensive. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of it. And I do see that there are some teams in Australia and I mm. see some, some sponsors putting up um, money for, for teams and it'd be nice if those teams had some great races mm. and, and those sponsors were getting some money back for them. But I understand the complexity of being an organiser. Glenn wants to know if you still speak to Mick Rogers. You're right in amongst the Rogers family. It was in the yeah. Rogers sandwich. Yeah, we were. Um, so there's a Hamans. I mean, my brother's a bit older than Pete, but, um, you know, there were a few families in that generation of, of Canberra riders, and, and the Rogers and the Hamans were one of them. And, yeah, I do. Um, you know, it's not it's not a lot, but, um, you look, we started riding as, as, as 10 and 12. Well, my first ever bike race was with Mick Rogers. Actually, my really? first ever bike race wasn't with Mick Rogers because I saw him riding up and down and I put my bike back in the car and said to <laughs> Mum, I'm not riding. My confidence can't deal no, with Mick Rogers. And, and it, he's uh, a year younger than me too. So yeah. um, he was already on a racing bike and everything and I, I was one of my first races. And the week later, I came back and the two of us rode for 6K or whatever you do when you're yeah. 10 years old. Great. And um, we just had a chat and we were riding along and then I remember him just stopping talking to me and riding behind me and I didn't know what was going on. And then at about 600 metres to go... So he was smart from he, the start. He had 300 metres head start on me, so... But all those little moments, they lead to winning on Roubaix and the velodrome. I did think about that the week after Roubaix, that maybe every time I ever rode a bike was it, that moment. It, and all those times you... All that time you spent on the track as a junior? 100%. Racing the track in Canberra was great. I mean, um, that's an experience. Uh, I believe the track's a lot better now, but that was an experience (laughs) in itself, the Canberra Velodrome. Um, But, yeah, I mean, everything. And, and, you know, Mick and I grew up. and and, um, But, yeah, the whole experience of of all those races, I think, came together in that one day. And now, next year, 2017, you'll get to go to Paris-Roubaix and you'll... Be in the team bus or in your hotel room and you'll pin on number one. How do you get there? What's the lead up to it? Roz asked the question very early on in the piece whether you'll be doing the Tour Down Under or not. I probably won't be doing the Tour Down Under, which is um, <coughs> might be news to, to a few. I'd, I'd love to be there, but my wife's um, pregnant at the moment and we're expecting our, our second child in, in January. So um, with a heavy heart, I say I'll, I'll probably be missing Tour Down Under. Um, um, 
So we'll have a slightly different lead up, yeah. and I guess we have to sit down and look at what worked with uh, with Roubaix this year, and, and and why did I have that form when I didn't have the ideal lead up? Get back in the garage. That's there's been a lot of talk about just taking a month off racing leading into the biggest race of the year, but uh, no, look. Um, I might have a bit of a slower start, and two down under has always been hard because you have to be at a certain level there. Mm. And if you've got a guy like Simon Gerrans going for it, you can't let him down. I mean, he's he's particular about how he wants to do that race, and and the team wants to have a great race there. And there's a lot of pressure on us, almost as much as the Tour de France. In it's an important ways. race for this team. Yeah, it is, yeah. and and you can't go there half-heartedly. And so that's also always put pressure on me to do a lot mm. of work in November and December to be prepared for that. And yeah. you're always cramming a bit when I probably should be resting some more. Yeah. So maybe this new, without doing down under, might give me a fresh start. Oh, let's see. Michael wants to know about double handlebar tape at no, Barry Road. Now, and I liked it when you got stuck no. in the Luca with no, the, Luca was putting the tape around the wrists and you right. gave him a hard time in the backstage pass. Yeah. Weren't impressed with that. No, just let the tires no, down. No, good. Just let the tires down a little bit. What's that's the pressure you run? Oh, that's a secret. All oh, right. Uh, Julie, Julie Davies asking the question about the pavé. You'll have to ch rewind, Julie, and go earlier on. It's still in Europe. It's at home. It's wait until it comes back. Too heavy. Yeah. Um, so is next year the final year? Could be. Mm. Not sure yet. We'll see how much this baby cries. Maybe <laughs> I want to go on road again. Um, I know one guy that rode for Australia at the World Championships in 1990. He yeah. said the best form of his career was in the year or so after the the birth of each of his children. He'd go out training with the group ride, he'd get near home and think, do another hour. <laughs> screaming baby pooey napping, do another hour. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's not, not nice to admit. Um, no, I mean, often the guys, we come to the hotel and we talk about actually getting a good night's sleep. Um, and, you know, guys want to be up all night watching movies or something. And, and the guys with kids at home just, just turn in early and, and try and get a good night's sleep. And, you know, if, Obviously, um, Jens Voigt's a, a, yeah. a big one of that. With so many kids at home, he spent as long as he could on the road. That's why he kept racing until he was 43. So who knows, maybe I'll go to 43. All right, final question. We'll take the one here from Paul Everett, and it's about persistence and perseverance. Is that more about preparation than ability? Um, I'm a big believer that talent isn't just um, physical. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of talented bike riders in my life. I've seen a lot of guys come over from the amateurs, and, 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 and talent is one thing, but I think um, the ability to train and the ability to continue against adversity and those kind of things is a, is a talent that doesn't get recognised as much as a VO2 max. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think it's something that you're, that you're born with, and, and like I was saying to you earlier, sometimes it can be detrimental often being too persistent and having too much perseverance has, has actually had negative effect on me and my career. Um, so, yeah, it might just, we might change it to stubbornness and pig-headedness. So. It would fit. I've often been asked to describe what makes Simon Guerin so good, mm. and I've always said it's not physical ability. It's actually the fact that he does everything that doesn't require ability. Yeah. And it's, he is one of the most professional guys I'm sure you've yeah. ever come across. Yeah. And he does all that, it's a cliche, but it's, the one percenters, and yeah. it's the stuff off the bike that he does. It's sleeping right, eating yeah. right, he stretching. He does ninety-nine massive. things one percent right, you know. Yeah. Instead of doing the other. No, he he definitely and 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 over my career, I've looked at different guys, and you try and take a bit from everybody. Yeah. It's a bit hard to take the pure talent from Oscar Ferreira, but you know <laughs> you can look at guys and say, well, that's the way he's training, and it gets results. And I think that's also part of this team that, you know, it's creating a culture where that 
that mm. you know the riders look up to that and if you see how Esteban Chavez prepares for something or Simon Gerrans and they're the guys that are going out and getting the results that rubs off on a team and, and that's why I think the whole team lives. Thanks for joining us. Congratulations on an outstanding Thank you very much. A brilliant career that's not done with yet. It might still go on until he's 43 because he's about to become a dad for the second time. What a champion. Thanks for joining us on the discussion.